0: In that video is Tim Keller, best-selling author and pastor. Reminds me of another famous pastor, Charles Spurgeon, the so-called Prince of Preachers. When he preached the passage we'll explore today, he told his congregation, I have nothing to do today but to preach Jesus Christ. The book of Acts tells us the very first Christians kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. The apostle Philip went into Samaria, and the Bible tells us he proclaimed Christ there. When he climbed into the Ethiopian's chariot, he preached Jesus to him. After Paul became a believer in Jesus, he began to proclaim Jesus. He later told his church he resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I hope that our time of worship and this message help us to turn our focus on to Jesus because he is what we will focus our hearts and minds on today today. Jesus, as we begin a new series, we put our focus on the one thing that refocuses everything else in our lives. And I'm so very excited to launch this new series this morning. We're calling the series Anchored. It'll be a fruitful exploration in the book of Hebrews. You can go ahead and find the book of Hebrews in your Bible. It's almost all the way towards the end. The book of Hebrews is a bit mysterious only because we don't know who wrote it and we don't know who it was written to. Most of the time, we know the author and the original recipients of the book, the letters that make up the Bible, but we don't know in this case. We do have a few clues, though, some clues about the recipients of this letter. And the letter to the Hebrews was written to a church that had seen and had some great experiences. They were a mature church in a lot of ways, but things were not all great. They were facing some challenges, and as you know, anytime things get hard, some people leave. They just can't handle it. They throw in the towel. And that's what happened in the book of Hebrews. Some folks had left the church. A lot of other folks were thinking about it. Things were getting really hard for them. In their case, they're facing persecution, even imprisonment, all because of their faith in Jesus. So some of them wanted to just walk away. And this uh, letter is called Hebrews because the church was made up of Jewish Christians. So they wanted to walk away and go back to being Jewish because that was easier. Everybody knew that being a Jew meant nobody would bother you, nobody would pay any attention to you. Everybody knew what being a Jew was all about. It wasn't weird like being a Christian. It wasn't threatening to anybody. So, so they thought if they could just go back to the way things were, go back to what was comfortable and familiar, then everything would be okay. Because being different is hard. Taking a stand for Jesus is hard. Sticking your neck out means you're likely to get your head knocked clean off. It's hard. So many of them wanted to go back to normal, whatever normal is, back to the way things were. But some of them knew that wasn't a good solution. They knew they couldn't really walk away from Jesus, so they decided to do the next best thing, to just lay low, stay quiet. They decided to stick with the church, but they got a little lax in their commitment. They got lackadaisical in the way uh, that they represented Jesus, uh, the things they knew they should be engaged in, the, the things that would really, really make a stand for Jesus. They decided, no, they're just going to slip back, uh, blend in with the wallpaper, and they wouldn't get hurt. They stopped trying to reach out to outsiders. They stopped growing in their faith. They just stopped. Well, both of these choices, walking away or fading away, are really the same solution. And they're not really a solution at all. They're just an attempt to make things easier. Maybe you can see yourself in these folks and these responses. When things get hard, we all want to make things Normal. Maybe not exactly the same, not trying to be Jewish, but we all want to make things easier. So we try to run away, or we try to fade away. But if you ever tried to do that, you know it doesn't really work. I mean, running away from our problems has never worked for anybody. I don't know why we think, oh, this time it's really going to work for me, you know, but we keep trying it. I don't know why. The fading away, it's a little bit deceptive because it works for a little while, but then you find yourself just stuck. Going nowhere, wondering what's wrong, spiraling into depression. In every case, the the solution is not really a solution at all. And the author of the book of Hebrews, he knows that. He writes to this church with with a passion, with a pastoral appeal. He knows them. He knows what they're up against. He sees what's happening, and he cares enough to help. So he writes this letter, this very pastoral appeal to the church, and he encourages them. He's got a couple of big goals with this letter. One goal is simply to elevate Jesus as superior to all the other things that they're trying to choose. In fact, this word superior or better, it shows up 12 times in this letter. It's all over the letter. Uh, Just like you heard in that video, Jesus is better. His second goal is a call to faithfulness and obedience, not running away, not fading away, but leaning in. Uh, remaining faithful even when it's hard, pursuing obedience in the face of challenges and setbacks. And the final goal, the final reason for this letter is just to prepare the church for what comes next, to position them to, to face the future with a renewed focus and a renewed energy and a renewed faith. Well, these are all my same goals. As we explore this letter together, I want to see us as a church fired up about Jesus. I want to see us valuing him above everything else. I want to see us lean in to greater and greater faithfulness and obedience so that we're ready for whatever God has next for us, that we head into a new season with renewed focus and energy. You know, it's not very often in life that you know you're in a transition time. Most of the time, those kinds of things sneak up on you. Like one day you've got a job, and the next day you don't. Boom, you're in a time of transition, right? Or one day you go to the doctor, and the next day you're navigating a whole new world of cancer or what have you. But in the case of us, this church, we know we're in this time of transition. We know that things are going to be different in the future than they are today. And so my hope is that this study will position us for whatever God has next. So my goals in this time are the same as the goals of the original author, focusing on Jesus, leaning into faithfulness, and a renewed energy for what comes next. And as we go through our study, we're going to follow the same structure that the author of Hebrews followed. This book is is organized around five warnings, five places where the author warns of specific dangers. And in each warning, the author identifies the danger and then points us back to Christ, to his example, to his work on our behalf. In each case, we see the danger, we see the, the risk we're facing, and we can choose to anchor ourselves in Christ and the hope that he provides. And that's going to be our structure throughout this series. We're going to understand the the danger, the warnings, and we're going to understand how Jesus himself has responded. And then we'll, we'll find ourselves in that. We'll anchor ourselves, responding to situations in the way that honors Jesus. So that's what we're going to do over the next several weeks, continually turning our hearts and minds towards Christ. He is better. He's our anchor. He stands ready to prepare us for what comes next. The author of Hebrews tells us we have this hope as an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. So with all this introduction, with all these things rolling around in our hearts and our minds, where do we start? We start at the very, very beginning. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Already we see Jesus is better than what came before, right? God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he became superior to the angels just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. So this is how the letter starts off. No greeting, no how's the weather out there, anything like that. It just starts off with Jesus. And in fact, it starts off with one sentence. These verses are all one sentence in the original Greek, and it is a power-packed sentence. It tells us so much about Jesus, really re-centers us, anchors us in some glorious truths about Jesus. And notice it starts off with an assumption, with a, with a fundamental assumption about life and about the way the world works. It starts off with an assumption that God speaks God uh, is involved with the world enough to speak to us, to communicate with us. And there's a variety of ways that God speaks, a variety of ways God can communicate. Over the centuries, he's used all kinds of ways to communicate to us, to humans. In the past, this passage tells us God spoke through the prophets. A big section of the Bible is made up of prophetic books. A whole chunk of the Old Testament is entirely prophetic material. God using prophets to speak to his people at different times and in different ways. And there's examples of this all over the Bible, from Genesis all the way through. That's one way that God speaks. And in the past, God would would give a person a special gifting of the Holy Spirit, and that person would serve as God's voice for a time. Like Moses, God called Moses to a specific task, to lead his people for a time, and he gave Moses his spirit so that Moses could speak on behalf of God. In other cases, God used angelic beings to communicate with humanity. God sometimes communicates through miracles. Miraculous events occur that demonstrate the truth about God. The Bible tells us other people experience visions from the Lord, visions that communicate important truths about uh, God. So he's used a variety of means to communicate with people. And even today, many people have these same kinds of experiences. They want to share a prophetic word or they have a vision, these kinds of things. People still look for God to communicate in these ways. But notice verse 2. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Just like the video we saw, Jesus is the true and better word from God. God can communicate in all kinds of ways, and he's chosen to send his son to us. Not just a messenger, not just a prophet who God used temporarily, but something better. Not a messenger, but the word himself came to us. It's better than anything else. The the pinnacle of God's communication, of God's concern for you and I, is his son, Jesus. There's nothing better. And this passage goes on to tell us why Jesus is superior. A long time ago, I used to go to church with Chuck Swindoll, famous preacher. I mean, we didn't carpool or anything, but I went to his church. And he used to do something that would make me laugh all the time. He would be preaching along, and it would be like, almost lunchtime, towards the end of the sermon time, and then he would say something like, and now I want to leave you with 11 ways that you can, and I'm like, or, uh, you know, as we conclude, here are 10 things you can do about, you know, it was always a really long list, you know, 14 ways to, you know, and I'm like, how is he going to squeeze 11 more points in? It's almost time to go, you know, but When you preach like Chuck Swindoll, time is relative, I suppose. You can do what you want. But I share this with you because I want to share from this first sentence, this opening passage of the book of Hebrews, I want to share seven truths about Jesus that anchor us in challenging times. Seven truths about the unique greatness of Jesus. So, first, this opening passage tells us Jesus is the heir of all things. Verse two. It does not mean that Jesus is going to inherit everything when God dies. That's not what we mean. What it means is that Jesus can be trusted because he will have all things under his control. In the end, he'll have everything at his disposal. So we could put our trust in him now knowing that he can make good on his promises. If he says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth, we could trust him he'll make good on that promise because he'll own the earth and everything in it. If he says nothing in all creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, he can make good on that promise because he'll own all creation and he'll have it under his control. If he tells us there shall no longer be death or mourning or crying or pain anymore, then we can trust him. He can make good on that promise because he will own life and death and he will rule over everything that would cause pain and crying and mourning. Everything will be under his authority. Jesus already has authority. Everything already belongs to him, but he's the heir of all things. So so God's going to give him even more direct rule than he has now. Everything is going to belong to him. So we can trust him to make good on his promises. The second truth from this passage is that Jesus made the universe. So Jesus, he's inheriting what he already created. That's a stunning statement. He made the universe, that he created everything. It's especially stunning considering the source. We don't know who the author of Hebrews is, but we do know that he had a firsthand relationship with the apostles of Jesus. So apostles who who walked and talked with Jesus taught the author of Hebrews. And now he could say without any hesitation that Jesus created the universe. That's stunning. And what's more stunning, perhaps, is that the apostles themselves, they say the same thing about Jesus. John tells us all things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. All of creation came into being through Jesus. And this word in in Hebrews, this word he made the universe, it's the word in Greek eons or, or ages. So it's not just the earth that he made, but it's all of time and space. The whole history of the universe was made by Jesus. The Apostle Paul affirms this in Colossians. It tells us, for everything was created by him. In heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, all things have been created through him and for him. It's an incredible testimony of Jesus and his deity. I read an article this past week, an inspirational article that was pulling wisdom from a variety of different sources. And this guy who wrote it, he was smart. He had quoted some ancient Greek philosophers, and then he quoted this teacher named Jesus of Nazareth. But the truth is that Jesus is so much more than just a wise teacher. He made the universe, and everything has been made for him. That leads us to the third truth about Jesus from this passage. Verse 3 tells us Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Throughout the Bible, God's glory is described as, as a light, as something bright. In some cases, so bright you can't even look at it. And this word radiance describes what shines out of that light. So in other words, Jesus reveals the glory of God. If you want to know what God is like, Jesus reflects him. He radiates godness, if you will. And John the Apostle, John 1, describes what this radiance is like. John says, we observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The the nature of God, the glory of God shows up in Jesus. And one of the ways it shows up is in grace and truth, this beautiful mixture of of truth and grace. These characteristics of God that are at the very core are revealed most clearly in in Jesus. Truth, because Jesus confronts us all with the reality that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And grace, because God Himself made a way for us to be sinners made whole, to be made new, to have a restored relationship with God. Jesus reflects the very heart of God, He, he radiates God's glory. The fourth truth about Jesus that should lead us to greater worship of Him is the very next phrase, verse 3. Jesus is the exact expression of God's nature. So not only does Jesus reflect God's true nature, his glory, but he shares that nature. He's the exact representation, the exact expression of that nature. In other words, all the things that make God God, his very essence, Jesus has that same nature. That's why Jesus can say, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. This is another amazing statement about Jesus. Again, people who walked and talked with Jesus are willing to say he has the same essence as God. They're saying he's God in the flesh, essentially. And this phrase, exact expression, is a a cool word picture. It's the word used to describe the the emperor's face on a Roman coin. They would make a, a stamp, and then they would stamp the metal so that the impression on the coin was exactly the same as the stamp. It's an exact copy of the stamp. So the author of Hebrews, he's using this word. He's saying that Jesus lets us know exactly what the nature of God is. He demonstrates that in his words and in his actions. He's the exact expression of God's nature. Fifth, this passage teaches us that Jesus sustains all things by his powerful word. This idea takes us all the way back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the world. Now we know Jesus had a hand in that himself. And creation happened through his word. Over and over in Genesis 1, it tells us God spoke and then things came into being over and over. God said, let there be light. And there was light. On and on. So the word of God has power. Power to bring about life, power to bring transformation, and Jesus shares that nature of God, that essence of God, so his word has power. Power not only to create, but this passage tells us it has sustaining power, sustaining power, So Jesus, he's not like the uh, statues of Atlas, the the Greek god of mythology who, who holds the world on his shoulders, but Jesus sustains everything, not just holding it in place, but moving it forward towards its appointed course. The book of Colossians tells us, by him, by Jesus, all things hold together. So all these amazing statements about Jesus, he's, he's powerful, glorious, majestic, he creates and sustains the universe. And if this was all that we said about Jesus, we would be able to worship him. We'd be able to trust him with any problems that come our way. We'd still have no end of reasons to keep our focus on him. But that's not all we see here. There are more things that are said about Jesus. And these last two truths about Jesus in this passage, they're made even more amazing by the fact that we've heard these first five incredible truths about his glory and his power. So let's look at the sixth statement about Jesus here, verse 3. After making purification for sins, the this, this sixth truth is that Jesus, despite all his glory and majesty, he made himself small made himself humble, made himself an offering for sin. The one who had no sin took on sin for us. This is the heart of Jesus' work on our behalf, not just creating and sustaining, but showing personal, intimate care, doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And the author of Hebrews, he's writing to this Jewish audience, an audience that's very familiar with the Old Testament, with all the sacrifices that priests would offer. That's an idea that comes up later in the book. But, but of course, for Jesus, he himself was the sacrifice. He made purification. And this word purification is wonderful because it carries two ideas with it. It's both the removal of sin and the cleansing of sin. Why is that important? Think about it this way. Imagine that you're filthy. You're covered in mud. You're you're sitting in a pool of mud, head to toe, mud, stuck in a big mud puddle. You can't get out. Well, somebody comes along and shows mercy to you, and they lift you out, take you out of that mud puddle. Well, that's wonderful. Now, you can walk around. You've got freedom. You can go all kinds of places, do all kinds of things. You've been removed from the mud. But you still have a problem. You're still covered in mud. Even though you're not stuck in the mud anymore, you have some freedom that you didn't have before, you're still stained by all that mud. Well, Jesus made purification for sin. He, He removed the sin from us and he cleansed us. It's as if someone took you out of that mud pit and then they also washed all the mud off of you. You're totally changed, transformed. And this is such an important idea because it has amazing implications for the way we live. I mean, it's one thing to learn about Jesus creating the universe, but that doesn't really come up day to day, you know what I mean? But here, knowing we've been purified by Jesus, that's a game changer because it should change the way we view ourselves. We know ourselves, we know that we sin and we screw things up every day. But if we're believers in Jesus, then those sins Even the sins we'll commit later on today, those sins have all been removed from us. They no longer count against us. Jesus paid the punishment for them. And also, he's also cleansed us from sin, purified, so that we have a new nature. We can live in a new way. We don't have to walk around with the stain of all that sin on us. We're cleansed. So Jesus' purifying work, it doesn't just pay for our sins and return us back to zero, but it cleanses us. It makes us righteous so that we're made holy. We can live in a whole new way, a way that pleases God. And that should change the way we view ourselves. When we start to see ourselves the way that God sees us, we can walk, we can live every day in the great love that God has for us, and we can live in a way that pleases Him. There's one more truth about Jesus, one more truth that should also have a very profound effect on the way we think about Jesus and about ourselves. The very end of verse 3 says, after making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus died on the cross, he was resurrected, and then he returned to heaven and took his rightful place with God the Father. He had finished his work on earth. And just like you or I might sit down at the end of a long day's work, Jesus sitting down by the Father is an indication that his redemptive work is finished. He can sit down because he's done with that work. And the idea of sitting at the right hand means the place of honor and power. Sorry, left-handed folks, but the right hand is the place of honor and power. It indicates that Jesus has been given authority to rule along with the Father. That's why Peter says Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. He's ruling with God the Father. But the way that this idea intersects with our lives comes from the fact that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf. His very presence in heaven intercedes for us. It's an indication that his work is done. He paid the penalty for our sins. So his presence alone is an intercession for us so that God doesn't bring judgment on us because Jesus has already paid all that. He's taken it on. But the Bible tells us that Jesus specifically intercedes for us. God, he could uh, meet all our needs any way he wants, but he certainly chooses to respond to prayer. So Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, and he prays for us, asking God to work on our behalf. The Apostle Paul tells us Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. And there's one more place. This is one more place where this this glorious passage from Hebrews intersects with our daily life. Listen to this statement from theologian Louis Burkhoff. He says, it is a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us even when we're negligent in our prayer life. That he is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which we often neglect to include in our prayers. And then he prays for our protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious. He is praying that our faith may not cease and that we may come out victoriously in the end. Jesus, majestic, glorious, powerful Jesus, chooses to spend his time and energy praying for you and for me. Sustaining you and me. He gave his life to purify you and me. That's why the author of Hebrews can say that the hope we have in Jesus is an anchor for our souls. And that's why he makes such a passionate plea for us to stay focused on Jesus, because Jesus is better than anything else that there is. The church in Hebrews, they were running away, and they were fading away. They knew that staying with Jesus was not always easy. They'd succumb to the danger of distraction putting their focus on so many other things. And even though we got different reasons for being distracted than they did, the outcome is the same. We take our eyes off Jesus. We see all our problems instead. Jesus is sidelined, and and we want to run away or we want to fade away. We face our own dangers as a result. So right from the beginning of this book, we refocus our hearts and our minds. There's a quote that summarizes this passage. I put it in your sermon notes. George Guthrie Says this. So the opening statement in Hebrews introduces us to the heart of the book as a whole. God has something to say to the church, and that message focuses on the person and the work of the exalted Son. God still speaks today, and He speaks through the words and works of His Son Jesus. The one who is God himself, who made the universe and sustains all things, who radiates grace and truth, who purified us and who intercedes on our behalf. He is still at work today, encouraging and empowering us not to run away and not to fade away. So let's keep our focus on him. Let's not get distracted. Let's lean into faithfulness and let's get ready for what's next. Let's turn our hearts and our minds to him, the only one who is worthy of our worship. Let's pray. God, as we reflect on these truths about your son, Jesus, uh, worship is the only response that we can offer. We worship not only your greatness and your majesty and your power, but also your humility. As your word says, you uh, gave up your place in heaven to come and be with us taking on the form of a servant to all and even more than that you took on the form of, of the most common criminal willing to die for us but your glory shines through that and you became not just some other person who died but you were raised to life And you took your place at the right hand of the Father where you continue to serve us. You continue to love us. And so we have nothing in our hearts except worship for you. As we think about the the challenges we face, the individual problems that we have, the, the things that our church might be going through, Lord, all those things fade away as we keep our focus on you. So use this time of worship, Lord, as we turn our hearts towards you in a fresh way. In the name of your glorious Son we pray. Amen. Would you stand as we sing this new song?